Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast episode. I'm J.W. Marshall with MarketScale and we're glad you're listening. Today's guest I am very excited about. Uh, we have with us Mike Belcher, uh, Director of EdTech and Innovation at HP Inc. Mike, how are you doing today? Uh, doing, doing really good as best as anyone can do. Exactly. I know 2020 is coming to a close sooner than we know. Um, if you could give our audience just a little bit of background on, on yourself and uh, your what you do uh, at HP uh, to kind of kick us off and then uh, we've got some good questions to dive into. Yeah, no, most definitely. Thank you again for inviting me here. Glad to be here. Love what you guys do with Market Scale and sharing this great information with folks. So hopefully, I'll have some value to add. Uh, I've been in uh, you know technology and working for large Fortune 100 plus companies for you know well over 20 years. The last 13 at HP, uh, mostly focused on the merge between education and technology. And uh, you know my current role, really about the last seven, eight years has really been focused on setting strategy on how we look at what technologies are going to drive business innovation and where we'll see job growth and skill change and that sort of thing. And then how does that relate back into education so we can hopefully do a better job of preparing our, our educators for that as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a focus on K-12 education, higher ed education, professional education. Uh, you guys kind of do it all uh, at HP. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Well, let's dive in uh, to our first question and we'll just get the elephant out of the room. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've seen from your expert uh, kind of standpoint as far as the changes that we've endured here in 2020 uh, during this global pandemic, uh, as far as, you know, kind of what were the trends pre-COVID uh, and now what, what changes have we seen and, and where's this whole thing going? Yeah, you know, I, I will say there's some some market dynamics that don't make sense to us yet. <laughs> we're still trying to figure out some of those, but, uh, you know, as we, we look at uh, where uh, the, the country was kind of headed economically, I think everyone was feeling pretty decent, right? Uh, I know there was some sort of volatility and potential for, for challenges. Uh, and, and honestly, when, when COVID hit and, uh, you know, everyone <laughs> quarantined, went, went home, uh, whether that's from school, from work, from, from whatever, uh, I, I think, honestly, people have handled this far better in many cases than I expected, far worse in some other areas, right? Uh, the, 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 the thing that I think has hit us hard was um, how, how at risk many of our businesses were, right? And, you know, as we think about uh, our retail business and how ill-prepared they were to move to a digital environment, our hospitality, our travel industry, um, there, there's so many industries that were just hit so hard, and I believe we're going to get continue to get hit hard as this extends and it becomes more of a challenge. Uh, this idea of how we change the way we do almost everything should be a core superpower for for the United States, right? The the way that we think entrepreneurial, the way that that, that we think in an, in an innovative way to solve problems. Uh, I just hope we can get focused more on that as we get through this election, and and folks can really start to concentrate on solving these problems. Absolutely, and to dive a little deeper in that, um, I know uh, 
we've talked in the past about some specific industries that you've seen some some big changes in um, as far as uh, you know manufacturing would be a big one um, as far as you know that model uh, changing uh, the need for continuous improvement uh, speak to that a little bit yeah it, it is one of those things that uh, I've been you know incredibly uh, bullish on particularly the last six years as I've learned more about the manufacturing industry uh, and if you had asked me 10 years ago you know if I would ever spend the amount of time that I have in understanding manufacturing, I would have said, there's no way I'm spending time on that. But uh, it, it really has taken off because of, uh, you know, the, the interest level that we see in this next generation of, of, of manufacturing and particularly additive manufacturing. And, uh, you know, I, I remember a, a time probably about six years ago when uh, the, the CTO of our 3D printing division, which at the time I didn't even realize we had one, we were just kind of getting, getting wind of what was going on there, uh, brought and showed me a prototype of a 3D printed object. And uh, that 3D printed object was a pair of scissors. And these were small, um, you know, plastic, uh, you know, gray sort of plastic, rough looking. And I'm going, okay, that's interesting because, but guess what? These were printed already assembled. There's no assembly required, no screw, no, no, no sharpening needed. And, and showed me as he proceeded to cut right through a piece of paper. And I went, okay, I get this, right? This starts to make sense. We were about two and a half years ahead of releasing any of this technology into the market. And uh, part of what we realized is we need to get out and evangelize this, right? To, to make sure folks knew what this technology would do, how it could change things. So this idea of printing manufactured products is really new, right? Uh, and so, you know, currently there's all sorts of interesting technologies. The, the technology that, that we leveraged really came out of our uh, inkjet printing division where we print microfluidics, right? Where you put, you know, hundreds of thousands of drops into tiny spaces, right? That, that we can do with our 3D print, or excuse me, with our, our inkjet print. We do the same thing with uh, highly uh, powdered materials, right? Whether those are polymers and plastics, we're doing metals now, uh, all sorts of other materials coming in the future. But the ability to design a product and build it from the ground up and you actually print it from the bottom up uh, gives uh, you know entrepreneurs, gives designers, uh, gives folks who are looking to solve problems in new ways a whole new way to think about how you can make products and where you make them, JW. And that to me is one of those kind of keys is where we can now stand up manufacturing. And as far as where you mean uh, locally versus nationally, nationally versus uh, you know globally, uh, what specifically are, do you think as far as where, or I guess in your own home or all the above? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, eventually I think we'll get to that point where, where we can do some of this in our own home. Right now, uh, the, the technology we have is really at manufacturing level sort of printers, right? Uh, these are, uh, in manufacturing levels are, you know, 350000 to half a million dollar printers, which in the industry is cheap. But, you know, if you think about a home printer, not something that most of us can afford to stick in our garage, and they're huge, right? So so they're, they're, they're very large. But this idea of where, you're exactly right. I think we're going to be able to pres, uh, print locally and being able to stand up, for example, smaller scale, but still highly effective and efficient at lower costs 
uh, small-scale sort of customized manufacturing at local levels. And if we think about the amount of empty shopping centers we have and warehouses we have, um, it's that, that's a perfect location for these, right? What you need is power and some ventilation, and that's pretty much it in, in an empty space. And you can start standing up your own customized manufacturing houses because there's no need for tooling and retooling. Uh, there's no injection molding and building molds. In fact, many cases, uh, this technology has been used to make some of those molds uh, to, to, to help manufacturing. You don't have to carve things out of metal because it was the only way you could build a product. Now I could build that out of plastic, lightweight it, reduce the cost, reduce the energy it takes to drive it, etc. So that to me is is going to be the big changer. And and as we've been doing, you know, work looking at the at the future, we believe somewhere between five and ten million new jobs are going to start up in the next decade, just out of this additive manufacturing uh, business. Wow. And so I know almost everything we talk about usually comes back to education. That sounds like there's going to be a big need for some reskilling and some upskilling of uh, the workforce that maybe is currently working in manufacturing or has been laid off this year from manufacturing. What, what are your predictions as far as what will those jobs look like in the future? Yeah, and in a couple ways, right? I think things will kind of morph. First off, your low-skilled, repetitive sort of manufacturing jobs, those are going to be um, a thing of the past. Right? <laughs> and, and we have to think that way and, and be um, smart enough, right, not to, 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 to try to regenerate jobs that don't have a future. Um, what I think this allows us to do is scale printing or manufacturing in small scale levels, but it requires far more skill, right? So first you need skill in the design process. And honestly, if you think about where we design most of our products or parts or whatnot, they're they're in, you know, CAD-based sort of programs, right? And so all of the CAD-based programs now have additive manufacturing capabilities built into them. So when you're designing, you can design for uh, CNC machining, you can design for injection molding, or you can design for additive manufacturing. And so there's going to be a lot of retraining, we believe, uh, desperately needed in understanding how to leverage and use additive manufacturing to lightweight, to reduce costs, to, to, to do all of those things that, that it adds at that localized sort of level. So that, that will be one of those cases. Design and how we reskill for design will be a huge one. The other one will be, I think, in a, in a great opportunity, particularly, I think, for like community colleges, tech colleges, private training groups, uh, is really thinking about how do we help them gain more skills around functional engineering, around materials, and, and, and understanding that basic design criteria. As we think with a, a two-year certificate, um, you can probably run these machines pretty effectively, efficiently, and understand how they work and how materials work so that you can have that higher skilled, higher paid level job running and operating these machines, doing the finishing work, etc. But it won't be this traditional, you know, I grab a wrench and I attach bolts all day or I move objects from here to there. Anything that can be automated, anything that can be done far more effectively or efficiently, I think COVID is just going to expedite almost all of that movement. Yeah, it seems like we've accelerated the, the digital transition by about five to 10 years uh, in 2020, um, which is, is maybe one of the silver linings we can pull out of this. Um, sticking with the topic of, of manufacturing, market scale actually works with a lot of industrial companies. 
And I thought it was really interesting uh, on a recent podcast to get a perspective that was a little different than what I thought before as far as uh, automation uh, kind of uh, reducing the workforce, that now these uh, workers are being replaced by robots. And a lot of the panelists uh, in this uh, particular conversation said, no, we're upskilling the workers. We're going to keep the same amount. We're just going to do five times the manufacturing because of the automation. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective to have the the half glass full uh, look at this as a a positive for everyone and not a uh, machines taking over the world. Uh, have you seen that in your experience as well, or what, what's your take on that? A hundred percent agree, right? Well, one of those challenges and why we make our, our products elsewhere is because of cheap labor, right? And so the labor is so inexpensive that it's less expensive to use human labor than it is to use automation, right? You still need to build all of those products. You still need to, to, to design them. And in many cases, we build them in a way that isn't the best way to build those products. It's because it's the cheapest way to do so. Um, I, I think this sort of technology and allowing us to do more of this localized manufacturing with the supply chain being pretty much raw material right? that you can bring in, and, and that becomes the, the supply chain, you, you'll see folks like Volkswagen, right, who are very interested in this technology, already deploying some of it with us, uh, metals and plastics, where their interest is right now. And you know what, where I have an assembly plant where you know, some of that is automated, some of it is not. I want to stand up my own manufacturing. I want to put a warehouse in place where I can manufacture the plastic parts when I need them. I can manufacture the metal parts and as many of them as possible when I need them. So that these aren't being done all over the world. And when you have a, a pandemic, everything comes to a screeching halt, right? So this ability for us to, to do more of that just-in-time build of the product locally where you're actually manufacturing was where I think we're going to see more uh, companies begin to think through that process, right? This technology is enabling them to rethink and innovate in those areas. And there will be more jobs and more high, highly technically required jobs come out of that group. That's amazing. Yeah, and the feedback I got was the people currently doing some of those lower-level jobs are the best people to learn those skills because they do already have a baseline foundation on how this works. And so it's just the next progressive step. And and not to think of, you know, the the minimum wage job to the 100,000-plus job as one giant leap, but to think that there's going to be a transition period where the next best job is going to keep coming available for those that are kind of seeing the future along with, uh, you know, employees as well as employers. Yeah, th this idea of continuing my education, um, you know, I'm an autodidact. I, I read and I'm learning <laughs> almost every minute, right? Uh, and I look for those, those sort of opportunities where I have interest to, to do more of that. I think that's going to be the skill that will determine your <laughs> your your success rate right, as a as a worker in this twenty uh, first century, and that ability to to train retrain myself, follow areas where I have interest, reskill in those areas that make sense. Those are the th those are the skills that I think are going to be incredibly valuable. Uh, and, and and you're exactly right. I, I also believe our community colleges and, and technical colleges in particular are going to be highly valued, right? This is the kind of work they do. They work with area businesses, area manufacturers, and they help them uh, navigate this process and skill and reskill workers, right? So uh, I, I think this um, you know, connection point between 
uh, private industry and education is going to have more value. Our concern is for uh, four-year universities, right, who uh, don't always have that applied skill level. I think they're going to have to have tighter relationships in with their community colleges and tech colleges and where they may be providing the theory and that's what they do well, but you get hands-on experience in your college and technical college. So when you come out, you are really prepared to actually do real high-quality work. Absolutely. And, and as my listeners will know, we've touched on this topic uh, quite a bit in recent months as far as what is the future of higher ed. And, and a lot of the experts we've had on have said, you know, the Ivy Leagues and the top tier schools are probably going to be OK. Um, and the community colleges and the trade schools have never been more needed. They're going to be OK. It's really the middle of the pack where uh, it may be a, a big name school that's uh, you're paying as much as you would for a, a bigger name school, but not maybe getting any more value that is really kind of going to be in crunch time this year, and next year, uh, and possibly roll up into bigger systems or uh, unfortunately, maybe not make it through this uh, transition. So uh, it's good to hear you kind of echo the same thing on the, the community colleges, the trade schools. Uh, do, do you see them expanding? How can businesses even more tightly line up with uh, education, whether that's providing their own or more direct partnerships with uh, you know colleges, universities, and, and trade schools? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, maybe I'll give you an example of one that has really been impressive to me. And uh, yeah, I, I happened to meet the CTO for um, a, a technical college in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, Northeast Wisconsin Technical College. And uh, Dan heard me speak at a conference maybe three years ago. We started discussing and boy, it sure sounded like he and his president and their leadership staff were really interested in this discussion around Industry 4.0 and what are those technologies? What do they mean? Um, and we actually uh, ended up hosting at their location. They they have a uh, international blend between manufacturers and education uh, hosted at a different location. It happened to be in Green Bay last year. So I came and I keynoted that that session on manufacturing and what this begins to look like. And what we we saw is that relationship created between that technical college and the area manufacturers allows them to have this really thoughtful uh, discussion with those groups, right? The, 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 the presidents of most of those institutions are highly connected into their community and particularly into the, the area businesses because they do the skilling for them. So their approach towards this and providing that guidance and helping them think through this um, is incredibly valuable. And you could see how valuable those, those owners of those businesses believe that relationship was, right? I think those are gonna be smart businesses who make those connections and it's gonna be smart uh, college presidents who also do that, that same level of work, right? How do I find that area where I can be the biggest help to drive the economy in my own community, right? That to me is a, a, a smart way and a smart way to approach it. Absolutely. Uh, and it seems like to my listeners, uh, if you haven't done this yet, it seems like there is an environment of openness um, that we've never seen before from the academic community, um, even up into four-year uh, universities uh, to partner with business because they're basically you know, looking for every uh, lifeline they can to, to keep this thing going, to stay relevant. And so I really feel like now is the time this year, next year, to um, to ask how you can be involved with those uh, 
those universities, those trade schools, those co community colleges, because they seem to be, in my opinion, pretty open right now. Is that something that you've seen as well or that you feel right now? 100% <laughs> agree. It, it, and honestly, it's that area where I'm spending probably more of my time there than I am almost anywhere else because they they do some of the most innovative work in this skilling and reskilling, which to me is going to be what pulls us out of this this you know financial predicament and economic predicament that we're all going to be facing very very shortly if you aren't already right. Uh, there's a there's a hammer going to fall eventually out of this right, and so we need to be be, be prepared for that. Um, one thing I did want to touch on JW is that. Um, um, research institutions, I think, are going to be very well off as well, right? They're, they're not going to see near the amount of uh, churn that, that maybe non-research for your universities will. And that's another opportunity, I think, for maybe larger businesses to, to do more partnership there. We have lots of great scientists, lots of great researchers at our four-year universities. And typically, the, the, the largest of our companies are who get a chance to work with them to help solve problems. HP's been doing this for 80 years, right? Our, our, our headquarters in Palo Alto is still on Stanford's campus, right? We, we've been paying them rent for 80 years. Uh, and so this, this idea of how we do better partnerships with those research universities might be incredibly helpful for your business to find new ways to approach certain problems, right? And that uh, those folks having that kind of brain power, that kind of research capabilities, the grad students there that, that can help solve some of your problems, I, I think it's a really great, great place to, uh, to, to play as well. So if you aren't doing that level of connection point to your, your research universities, might be another place to explore. Absolutely. And that kind of beats me to my next question. Uh, if you have some other examples, what can smart organizations be doing now to, to think about these, you know, economic uh, problems for the future, these humanistic problems? Um, uh, what are smart companies already doing and, and what more can uh, a company do that maybe uh, isn't thinking about these things because they're in the weeds of a crisis right now? Uh, but, but what should they be thinking about? And what should they be doing right now to plan for the future? Yeah, so certain areas, right? We know unemployment is going to be high. We know we're going to have all sorts of budget challenges at governmental level. So if your business relates into that area, uh, and if you're a tech company like we are, it's, you know, the, 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 the government sector and everyone needs PCs. We can't make enough right now, right? Printers are on the same boat, right? So we are the beneficiaries of that. There's a whole lot of other folks that aren't. Uh, and so how do we start to align? Where do we see growth coming? And that, to me, is something that, that, that you have to do. There's the uh, latest version of the World Economic Forum, uh, Future of Jobs, just came out this week. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I love the work that the World Economic Forum is doing and looking at this holistically. Um, and where will that growth come? If you don't connect into the World Economic Forum and at least read through that and make that part of your your studies, you should. And uh, you know so some of those things that, that we're seeing there are where are the job growth going to come and and what does that begin to look like? Uh, where are the jobs that are going to decline? And boy, if you aren't at least looking at that as a business owner, you're you're doing yourself a disservice, right? Because if if some of those areas that are of decline or where you have employees or where your business lies, you you might need to start to rethink how do I innovate in a way that that either morphs my business or allows me to to, to be competitive. And what really hit me out of this latest version 
is how big the growth and how big the demand is going to be around data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. They are the top three increasing demand jobs. <laughs> and uh, I just pulled up an Indeed a, a, a week ago how many jobs are available. There were over 30,000 data science, data analyst jobs available in the US two weeks ago, right? This is in the middle of the pandemic. Um, so that, that is an area where AI and data science are gonna permeate everything we do. If you don't realize it already, right, it's how all the bots uh, you know, change our viewpoints on Facebook, right? It's how Google does marketing, right? And, and allows them to, to know more about us than we know about ourselves. It, it's that artificial intelligence that allows us to speak to our phones and get answers back. Um, we're gonna see that growth rate and how it permeates into our businesses in almost every single way. That is another area where I would definitely be, be looking, right? Manufacturing, if you're in that area, additive, but boy, almost uh, any business is going to have some sort of impact or, or potential impact through artificial intelligence and the use of data science. Absolutely. And, and a lot of that uh, research and a lot of that work is really critical for the future of everything. Um, so if you're not already, you know, looking into that, uh, now is the time. Uh, we've got time for, for one more question, um, and we always like to end on a, on a high note. Um, so give us a, a good success story uh, for 2020, or if you don't have one, unfortunately, uh, you know, what, what are you most optimistic about uh, 2021? Yeah, so I'm optimistic uh, in a lot of areas, right? The, the virus is going to be with us. This is going to be hard on us. We're all going to have to deal with it, right? We're Americans. This is We, we typically do well, right, with challenges uh, when, when they are hard hitting and, and we're unified around solving problems. So I think first off, you have to kind of think through where are those problems? How can we focus on areas that, that, that we can control and, and that will make a difference. And so, you know, outside of what we've already talked about, I think there's several different kind of unique uh, uh, areas that we're going to see growth uh, as well, right? So not just on the, 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 the data science and added manufacturing, one that I'm really excited about, and my God, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's an area that I think in learning is going to change how we learn, uh, how we deliver learning. <laughs> and, and honestly, the pandemic is driving a lot of that right now, and that's extended reality. And uh, this ability for us to do situational learning and experiential learning, in many ways, it's actually better than doing it in a live environment, right? Because you, you, you think about uh, whether that's learning how to weld, right? You can actually get to 80% of your welding certificate in VR before you ever get a torch and hot molten metal put in your hands, right? Uh, and you learn the order of operations. This is how we're training doctors and dentists now, where they get so much more practice in a VR environment that looks and feels real because you're fully immersed. And when you actually get to a live patient, you already have that muscle memory of what do I do next? And you can focus on the patient instead of, oh my God, what's my next step, right? So there's a lot of that, that that kind of work. I think there's a lot of cool software that's helping in this, this area as well. And I'll, I'll give you a couple examples there. One is a company called Ovation that I really love their product. I use it myself. And particularly when I was traveling a lot and doing a lot of presentations, um, they do situational learning where you can put yourself in different sorts of situations. It may be a one-on-one -on -one environment where you're speaking to 
uh, an interviewer for a job or you're speaking to a small group or a large group and then can customize what that group looks like and then you can put your presentation and what you're going to say into that that software tool and what it does is put you in that situation you see the audience you feel like you're there and now you present and it is now uh, using data collection to understand how well you're doing in that presentation. How many times did you stutter? How many times did you say, uh, or so, or, or whatnot? And so uh, it, it's wild then when you come back and look at that. It was one of those things that uh, w w when I first started using Ovation, it was almost mind-boggling how badly I was presenting, right? But it helped me help me, right? I could do it on my own. Uh, it, and then if I had someone else watch uh, that with me, what else would you uh, recommend? And so this idea of doing self-directed learning and experiential learning, and then the ability to have a teacher as a facilitator in that process is incredibly valuable. I, uh, it, if I had to practice those situations in a live environment, how many times would I have to do that and have to look at myself in video before I could get that, that sort of response? So those are the kinds of tools we think are going to be really cool. Uh, a, another example I'll give you that is more um, education focused, but uh, Colorado State University is a university that actually um, started deploying extended reality and virtual reality in lab environments. And so they had a lab with a hundred virtual reality headsets with high-powered devices up in the ceiling that hung down in this big open space and you could have up to four students at a time collaborate in VR on a anonymized virtual reality cadaver meaning they actually took MRI and CT scans from actual patients and then those students could do an autopsy or could do discovery on all that they wanted to see. So if they wanted to see a patient, if they were, say, a, studying to be an oncologist, they could look at stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, lung cancer. You could never do that any other way, right? And so when COVID hit, they went, oh my God, what do we do? We're gonna lose all this lab time with our students. They sent all of their med school students home with virtual reality headsets and high performance devices so they could continue to do that lab work at home. They didn't miss a beat. So I thought that was a really brilliant sort of use of technology and how where we need doctors maybe more so now than at any given time, we, we don't lose that, that learning curve for those doctors or potential doctors. That's amazing. I did not know that. I actually saw one more example, um, firefighters using AR and VR and training. Yes. You can imagine the safety issues as well as the cost of lighting that building on fire over and over uh, and the water that they're they're putting on it. And it's they have weighted, uh, you know, uh, gear uh, that's built specifically for AR and VR and uh, just uh, amazing what, uh, you know, ideas are coming out of this this crisis that are going to make us better uh, post pandemic. Great example. Right. How about that? Uh, California wildfires right? with these 30, 40, 50 mile an hour winds blowing through you could actually simulate that in that environment. You'd never be able to do live as you're training, right? And then how do I handle this? Um, putting people in those situations that you can practice over and over again, so, so, so valuable. And scalability of yes. being able to train more people to help fight the fires faster without having to pull all of your best firefighters out to be trainers. Right uh, so. Very cool. Wow. Well, I think we could keep going for another 30 minutes, but uh, <laughs> we're at the end of our time. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Oh, JW, thank you for the invite. Glad to, and please reach out anytime. 
Absolutely. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, Check out past episodes and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. And always remember to keep on learning.